Okay, that's been the, the discovery of this series, is just trying to find out what our passion might be, what God has called you to do as it regards to his purpose. And you're going, I don't know either one of those. And maybe this uh, completion of this sentence can help answer that for you. I am living for what? And maybe you say family, educating children, mentoring student-athletes. Um, maybe it is you're living for the next paycheck or a greater financial portfolio. Whatever it is, probably is your passion, whatever it is that you're, you're living for. And uh, I know that some of you in this room are going, I don't have a clue what that is. I, I don't even know where to begin with it. And I know there's others that are like, I'm, I'm kind of sure. I'm just hesitant on taking some steps forward in it. And then there's others that are like gung-ho for it. And I think the best way to learn is through example. And so today I want to share with you an example through the Apostle Paul. Next week we want to show about three different uh, examples of people in our congregation that have lived out their passion. And even one that in the midst of this series has said, God, I know I'm called to do something, not sure what. And in the middle of that finally discovers, oh my, this is what I'm called to do. And I think I'm going to take some steps to do that. And uh, quite a leap of faith for this young man. And I want you to be a part of next week as you hear from people in our congregation that are working their faith out with fear and trembling and are really knowing that God's called them to something and they're starting to take some steps forward in faith in doing that. But some of you are like, well, I don't even know what my purpose is. I don't know why it is exactly I wake up in the morning and why I breathe and exist. Well, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, if you follow after Jesus, let me share with you what your purpose is. Because it's, it's, awfully, it's not really that difficult. Uh, it comes from the book of Mark, chapter 12. Jesus says it like this. Shall we say it together? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. We boiled it down, made it quite simple. We said it's to love God and it's to love people. That is your purpose on this earth. It's to love God and to love people. If you're a believer in Christ, you're to love God and to love people. Now, your passion is how that purpose is worked out. It's how that thing happens. That's your passion. How do you love God? How do you love people? That's your passion. Some of you in this room, you're not believers. Um, or you haven't made a commitment to Christ. You're not willing to put his teaching over you just yet and following after him. And you're wondering what your purpose is. Uh, let me tell you what your purpose is this. You just don't know it yet. That's your purpose. It, it makes life more fulfilling. It answers life's riddles. Uh, Christ says, when you accept this purpose in your life, your life will be uh, finally total. Life will be worth living. It will be satisfying for you. Will you have problems? Absolutely, you can have some problems. But you'll be able to live that out regardless of those problems. And so what I want to do is do kind of a case study on a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. He's a New Testament guy. Uh, you can find out where we're going to study in Philippians 1. However, I think to really understand what he says in Philippians 1, you've got to look all the way back to a chapter of Scripture in Acts chapter 21 to find out this guy's backstory because his backstory is super impressive. Because once you discover how much adversity this guy's faced and all the problems he's climbed over, it gives you a better understanding of what he's about ready to say to us in Philippians 1. So let me give you the backstory. Uh, the backstory's it's kind of long, but it's a great story. It's, it was written five years, Philippians was written five years after all these events took place. Here's the events. Paul was worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem like we're worshiping today, praising the Lord, giving his heart over to God. He was doing that with some friends. And there was an angry mob outside that had 
been fueled by some false rumors about Paul. Now, Paul was a guy that had a lot of enemies because he was this really famous Jewish man that converted over to Christianity. And all of those in his Jewish belief system felt betrayed by what Paul had done. So they were really, really angry at this guy. And they want any reason they can have to go and to, to take his life. And so they, they overrun the temple guards. They pull Paul out of worship. They throw him into the street. And I'm assuming thousands of people start beating and wailing on him. Now, he is beat up beyond belief. And I, I was just told this morning that it was Paul's nephew that runs over to the commander of the Roman soldiers. The Romans had a very unique role in the area of Jerusalem at that time. Their role was to keep the peace, regardless of how that needed to happen. So the commander of the Roman army wants to keep the peace. He sends troops to the mob that's beating Paul. He grab, they grab Paul. They rescue him, spare him from, from death because their intent of that mob was to kill him. And so he's bleeding, he's bruised, but he is breathing. And that's a good thing. So the Roman commander decides. Most of the time, men are not beat to an inch of their life for being non-guilty. Usually men are beat to an inch of their life for doing something wrong. So what did Paul do wrong? And so he decides to interrogate Paul. We're not talking some like patty cake, little interrogation, hot hot white lights on him. We're talking about Jack Bauer style interrogation here. So they take Paul and they wrap his arms probably around a post. And uh, they say, Paul, we're going to whip a confession out of you. And the the soldiers are like rolling up their sleeves, stretching out their soldiers' uh, uh, shoulders, trying to get ready to flog Paul to beat a confession out of him as to what he did was wrong. And Paul, Paul's tired of getting beat up. I mean, wouldn't you? He's bloody, he's a mess, and he's just just done with it. So he pulls out a get free, a get get out of jail free card. Here's what it is. He says, fellas, I had no idea that you were allowed to whip and beat a Roman citizen without finding any charge for it. Now, this scares the guys that are about ready to to whip him. And they go back to the commander, and it scares the commander because you are not allowed to touch a Roman citizen. No way. And if they were to touched him, they would have been the ones that would have been flogged and put into prison. So the commander has a real situation on his hands. He doesn't know what to do with them, but he knows he has a hot potato and he wants to get it away from him into somebody else's. He wants to make his problem someone else's problem. So under the cover of darkness that night, midnight, he decides that he's going to dispatch 500 elite Roman soldiers to protect Paul. Now, does that tell you something about the fury of the crowd and maybe the size that it might have been that wanted Paul dead? 500 Roman soldiers were needed to transport Paul from Jerusalem to an area called Caesarea, another city, and hand him over to a governor by the name of Felix. And so the next day, Paul wakes up, and there's Felix in front of him. Felix has a pre-trial arranged for Paul. All the enemies of Paul, of course, of course, come and want to testify against him. And it's not looking good for Paul because Felix says, wow, this guy's no ordinary kind of Roman citizen here because everybody hates this guy. He's got a lot of friends, but he also has a lot of enemies. So he, he decides, Felix decides, I don't really know what to do with him. I don't have any charges against him. I can't really bring any kind of penalty or punishment for him. Um, it seems like no one's story really adds up here. So here's what Felix decides. I'm not going to do anything with Paul. But... I'll imprison Paul because I want a bribe 
I want to get my hands greased. Can you imagine corruption in the government? What? He decides, look, I need money here. So you give me some money, I'll let Paul out of jail. And no one shows up with any cash. Paul stays in jail without a charge brought against him for two years. Felix comes and goes. A new governor comes in. And now that new governor looks over Paul's charges and he says, okay, what in the world are you even here for? We're going to put this to trial. And he says, you know what? We're going to finish this in the place where it begins. So Paul, guess what? You're going back to Jerusalem. We've got a trial plan for you. Well, Paul knows if I go back to Jerusalem, that's where all my enemies are. And that's, I guarantee you, I'll be put to death there. They'll, they'll finally get their stories in line and, and they'll come up with some kind of, of lie and I'll die. And so Paul says, look, I got another get out of jail free card. I appeal to Caesar. If you were to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen, that means that you're saying, I want to go talk to the president. I want to go talk to the king. Back then you could, you had access. And so they decide, okay, fine. You want to go appeal to Caesar? We got to send you to Rome, Italy. And you need to hop on a boat. So they hop on a boat. It's a prison boat. You ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? Probably a lot like that. They're all rowing together, chained to the oars, so they must row. The prisoners must row. But the boat gets caught in a giant storm. The storm pushes itself against some rocks. The rocks begin to break up the boat. And now all the prisoners are left trying to scramble for anything that will float. The soldiers are finding anything that will float. And then they are pushed towards a maroon desert island. They're marooned on an island. And they're left there throughout the whole winter until another ship comes and arrives and saves them. But you know what? Here's where my, my whole questioning of God on this would have just, I would have been done with it. I would just, God, kill me now. Paul's around a fire after this happens. He's just trying to warm his hands by a fire. He's just trying to get warm. He's just swam in the ocean, just survived a shipwreck and two years imprisonment. And a snake leaps out of the fire from the wood and attaches itself to Paul and bites it. And he finds out it's venomous. That's where we're done. God, guess what? I'm done with you. I'm done with this plan. I'm done with whatever you got going on. I can handle the shipwreck. I can handle the prison. But we've involved snakes now. It's over. Paul's picked up and rescued. They're all rescued and sent back to Rome. Paul now is waiting for his appeal to go to Caesar. Caesar's not really like real aggressive about wanting to meet with this guy. So Paul has to find an apartment in Rome. He has to pay for it. And he's chained to a palace guard and... That's his GPS tracking system for being under house arrest is this ankle bracelet of this chain that he has to wear to, to, to this guard. And he's just waiting for the trial. But he's petitioning the church now. And that's what Philippians is. He's petitioning the church, churches like us, to say, can you send me some money? Because I have to pay rent for this apartment. And so the churches are trying to pay rent. They're trying to help him out. Because if, if rent doesn't come, Rome has no place for him except for the dungeons deep in the bowels of Rome. And Paul says, keep me from there, would you? So the rent's coming in. And so the book of Philippians is written to say, thank you for rent money. Thank you for helping me out. And I want to give you an update about my life and what's going on. The, the gospel's still being advanced, even though I'm in chains, even though I've been in prison, even though I've been shipwrecked, even though I've been bit by a snake, the gospel of Jesus Christ is still advancing. And what Paul shows us is that God's going to, if God brings you to a problem, he'll get you through the problem that's what he shows us if god brings you to it he's going to get you through it so here we are in philippians 1 paul is now in prison five years he spends in this house arrest state and he writes just about the majority of the new testament the new testament letters 
And here's what we read in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. I mean, for most of us, this would be the place where we would probably say, hey, I know that God has a plan, but I'm just not seeing it. And you'd have all sorts of self-pity and self-doubt and you'd be angry with God. But let me, let me just show you something about Paul's maturity in Christ. He never really asked the question, why God? Like, why me? He asked the question, what are you trying to teach me? What God? And when we go through difficult situations and all sorts of sufferings, we need to start asking, God, what are you trying to teach me in this? Because God was teaching him something, and that was the gospel can continue even though you're imprisoned. Paul, your purpose and your passion can still continue even though you have problems. And that's, that's the first thing Paul teaches us is this. My passion can continue even though I have my problems. This thing can continue on. Paul says, I might have been wrongfully imprisoned and shipwrecked and been marooned on a desert island. I, I might be uh, under house arrest and have no convictions against me. But this is a good thing. It's a good thing. Paul says, my problems are a good thing because the gospel is being advanced. This is how he says it. Actually, all of this, this junk has served to advance the gospel. And that's what I'm after. That's my passion, Paul says. That's my purpose is to love God, love people. And I'm doing that through preaching the gospel to one person at a time. Friends, God has a purpose in your problem. He has a purpose in your problem. Let's get into verse 13. It says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, everybody knew it. Everybody knew why Paul was there, that he is in chains for Jesus Christ. The palace guard is like this elite secret service division. They, they had careful watch over Caesar, his protection. They had careful watch over the Roman senators. Now, here's what's really neat is that Paul didn't see himself chained to the guard. He saw the guards chained to him. And with that kind of theory that he had, it began to sprinkle the gospel all over Rome where it really didn't have a presence. Because these elite guards, these palace guards, the next step in their advancement was to either become political powers or military powers. These guys were going to move on to do something great for Rome. And for 24 hours a day, Paul had their attention. They were chained to perhaps one of the greatest orators that this world has ever seen. And they got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ anytime Paul was awake. And his influence spoke into their lives. And I'm sure it influenced those men. I'm sure some of those men even became followers of Christ because they saw how Paul was able to endure this wrongful suffering. They were chained to him. Some of you are chained to some things, some problems. You're just, you're, they're inescapable. They're there. They're, they're attached to you. You're not going to break the bonds of it. Some of you in this room, you're chained to a rebellious child. You don't know what to do with her. And every time she comes home, uh, her problems all of a sudden become your major problem. You've already tried the tough love thing. You're, you're, be, you're so beyond that. You, you, they don't even have books written about the place where you're at now. And you're trying to figure this out, this relationship with your daughter. And, and let's just step back for a second. If you're a parent in here and you've got a rebellious child, you need to remember how God deals with us on how to deal with them. Because his kids, me, you, us, are rogue a lot of the time. 
And God says, I, I just want to help you. And we say, God, I really don't need your help. <laughs> and God says, oh, I just want to love you. And God says, uh, we say, I, I just, don't really, just don't really need your love right now. At least not in that way, not demonstrated that way. And maybe you have a daughter that, that just comes and goes, and, and she just won't let you speak into her life a whole lot. Guess what? You're chained by, by flesh and blood. And so let me say this. Don't give up on her. Every instant that she gives you, every phone call that she makes, even though it's a problem or a crisis or an emergency for you, you listen. But here's what you need to do. Don't perpetuate the problem, number one. Number two, don't talk about the problem. Talk about her solution. You know who her solution is? It's Jesus. And you preach Jesus to her. And you tell her about Jesus. She'll say, Mom, I hate it that all you do is talk Jesus. You keep preaching Jesus to her. She's... He's your deliverer. He's your salvation. He's your bedrock. He's the one that can get you through this. And while she may not escape the problem, when she finds Jesus, she's going to have peace even as she meanders through her problems. That's why you preach Jesus. Don't give up on her. There is hope, my friends, but you need to understand that your passion can continue even though you have your problems. Maybe you're chained to a job that has little hope of advancement. Some people call those a dead-end job. Or maybe you have a job that's doing great, paying the bills, and, uh, but you're not finding satisfaction, or the workplace is so intolerable, like you can't stand the behavior of the people. Let me just, let me say it to you like this. You're chained to it. <laughs> you need the money. Jobs are scarce. You and I both know, unless you put out some applications, you're chained to this job. So begin to use this problem as a way to look at yourself as being in the darkness that can shine the light. You change the culture of the climate that's there. You change all that. And you decide, you know what? All this junk that's going on with the silly jokes and the degrading of women and all the things that are just not for what Christ stands for, I'm done with it. I'm going to speak out against it, and I'm going to act differently amongst it. How would that change your workplace? All it's going to take, guys, is a candle in the dark for someone to have hope that it can be done. How about this? Let's decide today that the person you are here, you're there. You're the same guy. You're the same gal. Don't make it so that when you lace up your work boots, that, that gives you the, the right to have profanity laced in your conversations. Let this man be the same man that enters the workplace. And you know what? Just because you feel like you're in a place with no advancement doesn't mean that God can't do some gospel advancement through you. And maybe he's got great plans and purpose for you. I mean, right off the bat, you know that you should be thankful for the job. I mean, it's, it's finances. It pays the bills. It gives you provisions for you and your family. And friends, your passion can continue there. You can advance the gospel in that darkened environment. You can do that. Your passion can continue despite your problems. Maybe you feel chained to a broken down body, a body that's just worn out. You're, you're tired of the continual medical places you have to be at. It's disrupted your life. But you know, right, that your experiences can help you sympathize and empathize greater with people. You can minister to people. You're saying, I don't know why God's brought this on me. I'll tell you why. So that you can minister in a greater way to people that are going through something similar. Their bodies are weary too. So pray to God that he strengthens your soul. Even though your body might be wasting away, that your soul becomes strong so that you can minister to men and women that are going through something similar, the same kind of sufferings. 
Don't give up on what God can do in your life in the middle of your problems. Your passion can continue on even though your body is weak. You might feel like you're chained to a bad marriage. I mean, you're married to someone now and you, and you don't respect them, you don't love them, that's gone a long way away and, and you don't, you're not even attracted to them anymore. You feel chained to it. You just think, God, I thought you wanted pleasure for me, happiness for me. Isn't that what life's purpose is all about? It's not. It's about loving God and loving people. And even in your broken marriage and in your broken state, I can't think of a greater relationship where you can put your purpose into practice and you can love on your spouse as Christ loves the church and be sacrificial for him or her. And you're saying, I just don't feel it though. I don't give God too much feeling to love me. And I'm thankful that God doesn't love me based on his feelings. That he loved me a long time ago and made a decision to love me. And friends, I know it's going to be difficult, but every day you need to wake up saying, today I'm going to love my spouse. I don't care how I'm treated, mistreated. I don't care how I'm verbally abused. I'm going to love. I'm going to love. I'm going to love God, and I'm going to love people. You know, you can live out your passion despite your problems. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1 with me. And because of my chains, he says, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more proclaim the gospel without fear. Notice what he's saying. People have recognized that I've been able to advance the gospel here. I'm able to live out my passion in prison. And people have realized, if Paul can do it, I can do it. You know, there's people looking at your life and they're saying, if, they, if he can do it, I can do it. Perhaps your problem is the very thing that's going to empower someone else to live out their passion. Continue on in verse 15. He says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. He's saying people preach Jesus for all sorts of reasons. Verse 16, the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here. That's a good phrase. Paul's saying, I know that this is not circumstances, that God has put me here for a, a reason, a purpose. The purpose for defending of the gospel. Verse 17, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not necessarily supposing that they can stir up trouble for, for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? Here's Paul's mature view. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul says, in my absence, some people have tried to take my place and they've tried to preach the gospel for for financial means. Hey guys, let's take up an offering for the church and then take up an offering for the preacher. And I'll get rich, or I'll get famous. And Paul says, I don't care why people are preaching the gospel. What I really care about is that the gospel's being preached. That's a mature view, isn't it? And Paul said, that's my purpose. That's my passion, is that the gospel's being preached. And so here's another thing that he teaches us, and that is my problems might be exactly what are needed to accomplish my, my, my passion. My problems might be what's needed to live out my passion. You know, Paul's in prison, but he hasn't put his passion in the park because that's what I would have done. <laughs> oh, God, I'm in prison. There's, how am I going to love my family? I'm living for my family. How am I going to love my family from here? God, my, I'm living for educating kids. How am I going to educate kids from prison? God, I'm living to, to pour myself into these kinds of, how am I going to do that from prison? Now he decides, my problem is exactly what's needed to advance my passion. Some of you remember Chuck Colson. He's passed away now, but Chuck Colson had a great story. Special counsel to President Nixon. 
He was involved in the Watergate scandal, and because of that, he was prosecuted and sent to prison. But during his time of prosecution, he became a believer in Jesus Christ and sold out to Christ and went to prison. And after he got out of prison, he started what's called prison fellowship. It helps families of those who are incarcerated and helps those prisoners while they're in jail so that they can discover that there's hope, that the sun still shines even though the sky is dark. And then he started Breaking Point Ministries. It's a weekly commentary that is, has a Christian worldview behind it about how to strengthen our walk with the Lord. Now, it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, what kind of influence Chuck Colson would have had if he had never been sent to prison? Maybe his pro- problem was needed to propel his passion. Or how about Joni Erickson Tata? She has a heart for God, but when she dove into some shallow water and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic, her passion was super ignited to advance the gospel. She founded what's called Joni and Friends. It's a ministry that's for advancement of Christian ministries in the disability community. And so she is this nationally known speaker, and she has a radio program that every day people receive encouragement from, from this woman that was able to advance the gospel because of her problem. And I wonder what kind of influence Joni Erickson Tata would have had if she was never involved in a diving accident. Her problem was needed to live out her passion. Or how about Corey Ten Boom? She's a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. She offered, authored the widely popular book, The Hiding Place. It, do, it details her entire ordeal. And she gave her life to Christ. And when she did, she began to preach the message that God can forgive. And he loves those, even those that have mistreated others. <laughs> and this little Dutch woman had gone all around the world preaching that God will forgive. Because she has been able to find forgiveness in God and has been able to forgive her captors and her torturers. What kind of influence do you think this woman would have had if she had not been in a Nazi concentration camp? Her problem was needed to live out her passion. Or how about Tim Tebow? Great college career. And when he got to the NFL, man, the commentators and the sports writers, they didn't know how to take his faith on the field, and they just tore him apart. Players began to mock him towards the end of his career. And because of his faith and also because of his skill set, didn't have the skills to pay the bills necessarily, he was released from the NFL teams, and people looked at him as a joke. But that perpetuated his fame. It propelled his fame, didn't it? And because of that, he began to pour out his passion onto this country and he has a passion for those who are mentally and physically challenged so that those who are seen as uh, uh, ostracized in our communities will be able to be able to be loved and embraced and he's been able to do all sorts of unique and wonderful things for those who have mental and physical challenges and it just makes me wonder how much influence he would have had if his faith wasn't mocked And he didn't become front page news for living out his faith. His problem has allowed him to live out his passion. And some of you today, you're going through it. You're walking through the fires, the flames. Let me tell you something. God is refining you. 
And the problem that you're facing right now may be exactly what is needed to live out your passion and your purpose, to love God and love people, however that may be. C.S. Lewis said it like this, hardships oftentimes prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destinies. Let's get back into Philippians 1. Let's look at the second part of verse 18 as we close this out. It says, yes, I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out to be my, the word is, deliverance. That word there has been translated all across the New Testament as the word salvation. What Paul's saying is, you know, it happens to be this problem that has kept me connected to Christ. Have you ever thought about that with the problems that you experience? That maybe this is the thing that has kept me grounded to God here. And Paul is almost saying, you know, in some ways I almost welcome these problems because they keep a healthy reminder on how much I need to welcome God into my life. Maybe we can say it like, summarize it like this. My problems are not penalties. Some of you see that in your life. You think, God must be really mad at me. That's why things aren't going my way. That's why there seems like a storm cloud over my life. Friends, your struggles today will bring you strength for tomorrow. That's what's going on. And the very thing that, that you're going through right now just might be, it could be the very thing that's keeping you close and connected to God. That's what it could be. And you'll never know. You, you'll never know that God is all you need until you discover that God is all you've got. And your problems, friends, are not penalties. Now, there's consequences to sin, I get it. But you know, this world's going to have trouble. Here, here's the teaching of Jesus. Let's just stop and end it with the teaching of Jesus. That sounds like a good place. In the book of John, chapter 16, Jesus says these words. He's he's prepping his disciples that he's going to die, that he's not going to be with them for a time. And the disciples are scared. They're frightened by it. Their leader's going to be gone. He's going to the cross to, to sacrifice his life for us and cover our sins with his blood. And here's what he says. Guys, I've told you these things so that in me, there's a contrast here, in me, you will have peace. In Christ, we have what? Peace, right, okay. In this world, you will have trouble. Let's just say problems. In Christ, there's peace. In the world, there's problems. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Here's the contrast. In the world, you'll have problems. So if you put your, if you find your purpose in worldly things, you're going to have pain and hurt, disillusionment, anxieties, frustration, fear. You're going to get what the world produces. Pain. Trouble in this world. That's what you get. Jesus says, in me though, here's the contrast. In the world, that's what you get. But in me, here's what you're gonna get. You're gonna get peace. Some of you are saying, but do I get safety and security? No, 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 you don't. You don't get that. You get peace. That when you're in prison, you can still live out your purpose and your passion and you can still exalt Christ and you can be at peace with it. And you can start thinking like Paul, like maybe this is what I need to connect with God, and to live out my passion. In me, you'll have peace, Christ says. You get your purpose from Christ, you're going to get your passion from Christ. 
And you can have peace in the middle of your problems.